We live in a time that, for better or worse, is dominated by ads, whether it be on TV or social media or browsing the internet or now even in your Gmail email inbox. Ads are absolutely everywhere. And as you know, billions of dollars are spent every single year by companies trying to make their product so enticing that consumers will part with their money after a 30-second ad spot about their product. Some ads are more successful than others. You could probably call to mind some of your favorite commercials. Everybody during the Super Bowl loves to see the commercials, right? Some ads are very straightforward, and some of them are very elaborate. Some of them leave you confused. You don't even know what they were selling. But one thing that's pretty common is that ads tend to over-promise and under-deliver. Car commercials, for example, they promise that you can live this great life of adventure if you buy this SUV and then you buy the SUV and you still haven't gone to the mountains. Or you can buy this, you can really be a manly man with a long, thick beard and a flannel shirt if you buy this truck. And you buy the truck and you still aren't very manly. I remember growing up, we always thought that if we bought Michael Jordan's shoes, you remember, you'll run faster, you'll jump higher, you'll be better at basketball, probably be a better person. And obviously it didn't work because I'm still not in the NBA. But whatever the product is, the promise is that your life is going to be improved if you buy the product. Have you ever been fooled by this? By an ad. You bought something and you're like, wow, this was not like the commercial. I'll tell you, every one of us has, because if you've ever been to a restaurant and you've purchased food that you saw on an ad, you've probably said, this doesn't look like the picture. It's kind of thrown together. I saw another ad campaign recently that certainly falls under this category of over-promising and under-delivering. I was watching a football game several, several weeks ago, probably at the beginning of the season, when I saw this particular ad. And if you've seen any football this year, you've probably seen the ad as well. It's a very well-produced ad that has dramatic, even emotional background music and black and white images that come across the screen. Someone's narrating a story it's a compelling story, and then you find out at the end that the story was about Jesus. And the words come up that says, He gets us. If you're unfamiliar with this ad campaign, let me give you a bit of background. It's called the He Gets Us ad campaign. This ad campaign, it's a, someone gave $100 million to make these commercials. According to their own website, they are seeking to reintroduce people to Jesus. Well, amen, $100 million, and we're going to put Jesus in front of people every, all the time? That's amazing, right? The implication in all of their ads and their articles on their website is that Jesus gets us. G Jacob read from Hebrews chapter 4 that we have a sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize with us in our weakness and essentially what the He Gets Us ad campaign has done is taken that idea and ran with it. 
they so overemphasize the humanity of Jesus, the weakness of Jesus, of his humanity, of him being a human, that it's to the detriment of his deity. They go so far as to say in an article that's on their website right now that you can read, it's about being a good role model. This is a quote, quote, we realized that it must not have been easy for him, Jesus, to practice what he preached, end quote. You see, he gets us because he probably understands that it's hard to be a good role model to the people around you. So he gets us. He gets what it's like. You see the idea that they're expressing. Christianity Today did a piece about this ad campaign. They write about how the people who oversee the nonprofit that gave the money for this campaign, they wanted to launch this marketing strategy. And so they reached out to this marketing group called Haven. And so they interview some people from Haven. They interviewed the founder from Haven. And listen to what he says about the goal of the He Gets Us ad campaign. Quote, Is the goal that people become Christians? Obviously. But more importantly for now, we need to raise their level of respect for Jesus, and then they'll move, end quote. The president of the same marketing company had something similar to say about the goal. He says, quote, ultimately the goal is inspiration, not recruitment or conversion, end quote. The He Gets Us website has an option to find a church in your local area. Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. The campaign, though, has teamed up with another church marketing company that's responsible for encouraging churches in each area to join with them so that way whenever a person's looking for a church in your area, they'll direct them to you. However, according to the article, there is no theological criteria or statement of faith that churches must adhere to in order to take advantage of this campaign. What does that mean? Anybody. Any church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Catholic Church, Universalist churches, they people can reach out because of this ad and then be directed to those kinds of churches. You see, when you seek to market Jesus or rebrand Jesus, you inevitably create a Jesus that is different than how he is revealed in Scripture. And when you market a Jesus that's different than the true Jesus, you're marketing something that, wherein you are over-promising and under-delivering. Why? Because a Jesus of our own creation is a Jesus that cannot save. No matter how clever and how slick the marketing campaign looks, they have hundreds of millions of views on their YouTube videos. There's another well-produced marketing of Jesus that's wildly popular. You've probably heard of this one. It's the hit show called The Chosen. The show is a drama series that's focused on the life of Jesus. It's very well-produced. It has great acting and storytelling. It's very emotional. But it's also got some very real problems. Not the least of which that the production company is run by Mormons. Once again, you can see in that show that there is the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus to the point that it is an overemphasis of his humanity, so it diminishes his deity. 
There's one scene in particular that depicts this perfectly. Jesus is leading up to him preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can believe it, he's having a hard time figuring out what to say. Jesus. He can't figure out how to put this sermon together. So there's, they, they depict this as taking days and days and days for Jesus to come up with the words to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by anybody. Jesus struggled with it. And they take some artistic license because the disciple Matthew, who they say has Asperger's, the disciple Matthew actually helps Jesus put together the Sermon on the Mount. Folks, that's not a small thing. What that is saying is that God incarnate needed help to preach about God. God incarnate needed help. Can you imagine? He's called, what did John call him in the opening of his gospel? The Word. The Word became flesh and needed people to help him preach the Word. I don't think so. Once again, this is putting forth a different Jesus that can't save. I saw on their own social media account several months ago, they posted a comment of somebody who watches the show, and this is a quotation. My husband, my husband is not a believer, but he's been watching The Chosen with me. He said, I would follow that Jesus. End quote. Do you see the danger here? Well, I would follow that Jesus who's more man than God, who needs help putting together a sermon, who had a hard time holding up a high standard of being a good role model to other people. I'll follow that Jesus. That Jesus, I can relate to that Jesus. But we are over-promising and under-delivering because this is a Jesus who does not save a Jesus who is evidently more human than God. I wanted you to see talk I wanted to talk about this with you this morning. Number 1 because these are wildly popular today. Perhaps you are you've seen them yourselves, perhaps you know people who do, and there is great great problems with these these different campaigns and shows that we need to be aware of. But also, not to just pick on those two things, but also to show that how relevant John chapter 5 is for today. You see, sometimes we can get so caught up in in thinking about that Jesus is talking to the Jews, and the Jews were the ones who had a problem with Jesus, to the point where we think that this is detached from the time that we live in. Well, now Christianity is more accepted. Now Christianity is more popular. Now uh, people are giving $100 million to make an ad campaign about Jesus. This is a different day and age. But if you notice, when people put forward a different Jesus, it's always to the detriment of his deity. And look at John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews hated Jesus because of this. 
They saw him as a man, but not God. He was even a great man. Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher come from God. But that's not enough, now is it? Because in the incarnation, Jesus is fully man and fully God. If you lose one of those, you have a Jesus who might make for great shows, might make great TV, but doesn't save you. And you see how the Jews at that time hated Jesus because he's making himself equal with God. And what happens today? We love the Jesus who's a man who, can, who I can relate to. They hate the Jesus who makes himself equal with God. Well, the Jesus I know, the Jesus I know would never say that. The Jesus I know would never do something like that. The Jesus I know doesn't judge. The Jesus I know just wants to love everybody. It matters what greatly which Jesus you believe in. As we see in the text before us, this has eternal consequences. But we also see in our text that the Jesus of the Bible does not speak the way that many who promote this soft Jesus would think or they would even be comfortable with. The biblical Jesus certainly spoke of the benefits of trusting in him. Absolutely. He definitely spoke of love and grace and mercy. No doubt about that. But he also spoke of the consequences of not believing in him. The problem is that many want to just focus on the grace and the love of Jesus. Don't tell us about that wrath stuff. Don't tell us about that judgment stuff. Don't tell us about that. You know what that's exactly like? Jacob quoted it this morning in Sunday school. It's how they would talk to the prophets of old. Tell us no more of the Holy One of Israel. Prophesy to us smooth things. We want to hear the nice stuff. Tell us about grace and love and compassion. We want to know about that. My friends, you know we do not shy away from the scandalous grace of Jesus but only after we understand our need for that grace. After all, what's so great about the grace of Jesus if he doesn't judge you for your sin? Why do you need mercy if you're not judged? What's so great about the love of Jesus if you're perfect just the way you are? Then is that love really that loving? If you're perfect just the way you are? What makes his love so amazing is that he loved you while you were a sinner. While you were his enemy and his rebel. In our text, Jesus is going to talk about benefits and consequences. And it's all centered around the resurrection. Jesus is gracious and he's loving and he's compassionate. But our text shows us that he's also the judge. There are consequences to not believing in him. There are unfathomable benefits for believing in Him and trusting in Him and unbearable consequences if we don't. So in our text, we're going to look at those. We're going to split this text just in two halves. We're going to look at the present realities and the future realities. Verse 25 through 26. I want you just to look at this phrase. He says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. 
How can an hour be coming and an hour also be here? It's coming later, but it's also right here, right now. This is what theologians refer to, and this is just a brilliant way of saying it, the already and the not yet. Wow. You guys took months to come up with that one. <laughs> the already and the not yet. Wow, okay. But it's a helpful phrase because there are things that are already true and there are things about our salvation that are not yet true. And this is true of both blessing and consequence, of benefit and consequence. We learn here in our text that this is the moment, this conversation, this healing that sparked the enmity of the Pharisees in their hearts towards Jesus. And John tells us that it was started because Jesus made himself to be equal with God. To be sure, Jesus is still continuing to talk about his, his godness, if you will. The past two Sundays, we said we were looking at the demonstrations of deity, and that's still happening here right now. But there's a different focus here, isn't there? I take Jesus' words in this passage to be the culmination of the demonstrations of deity that we have been looking at. And it's also a means of exemplifying what he said in verses 21 and 22. He begins here by saying that there's something here now and something coming later. There, has, there is an, a sense in which the kingdom of God is here now. It is a present reality. And we would look around the world and say, where? And that's another conversation for another day. But Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's here now. The kingdom of God is here. It is a present reality. But it's also not yet fully culminated. Now, is it? There is a day where we will see the full, total reign of Christ where everything truly is in subjection to Him when we are in glory. But until then, we are in the already, where some things are true. Namely, there is one resurrection that takes place now. There's a pretty good debate going on in the theological world about how many resurrections are there. And I think that it's pretty clear here that there's two. There's an already and a not yet. There's a resurrection that's here right now. You say, well, where? Where do we see people being resurrected from the grave? Have you looked in the mirror lately? Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But there came a day where Jesus stood out of the tomb of your depravity and said, come out. And you came out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light and you are now alive. This is the first resurrection. It is a spiritual resurrection. You have been given life when you were once dead. You weren't just a bad guy or bad woman who made some poor choices and you kind of got your act together. You know my story. I was an alcoholic for a long time. Got into legal trouble. And there was people, after, I, after the Lord had saved me, who would say, man, you really got your life together, didn't you? And that would just really irk me so bad. You have no idea I was dead. 
A dead man can't get his life together. A dead man needs to be brought to life. I was given life by God himself. He spoke and I live now. That's what Jesus is saying. Is that there is a right here, right now, resurrection that you can experience where you are brought from deadness and you are made alive. And how does this happen? Jesus says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Can you just think about that statement for a moment? The dead will hear. The dead will hear. How can the dead hear? Isn't that one of the main markers of death? The scriptures telling us that we're dead in our sins of trespasses is that we are unable and incapable of coming to God. We can't do anything. But we're going to hear? The dead will hear? Yes. This is the same word that's found in Ephesians 2, by the way, that says you're dead in your sins. Necros. It's the same word. It is not just metaphorical. It means dead, no life. And what can a dead man do is the rhetorical question often asked. And the answer is nothing. A dead man can rot and decay and stink. We learn that when Lazarus comes out. Lord, he stinks. But that's our spiritual condition outside of Christ. But this text teaches us that if it's no longer our current spiritual condition, it's because we have heard the voice of the Son of God. And we have now come to life. So there are two implications in this statement that the dead will hear and live. First, the power of the the voice of the Son of God. Now if you remember the past two Sundays, we talked about that. We saw it exemplified in the voice of the Son of God being heard by the invalid by the pool. Do you remember that? Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't get down on his knees and say, let me, let me rub your legs. Let me kind of do these weird things where I jiggle your feet around and one leg's going to get longer than the other as they do today. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He speaks. He spoke to this man. Isn't that just absolutely incredible? So the same voice, the same voice that spoke to this invalid, causing him, causing the muscle fibers in his legs and arms to regain strength and the nerves to start communicating again and his brain to be able to to communicate with his limbs, even though they haven't for 38 years, That same voice that immediately created all of that in that man's body is the same voice that calls to our spirit and brings us to life. It's not that Jesus makes you alive and then says, here are some nice things for you to go and live this life. It's that you have heard the voice of the Son of God in your deadness. And that voice was so mighty and powerful that it regenerated your spirit, bringing it to life. That is a commanding, authoritative, mighty voice. Jesus says the dead will hear 
That's a reality of the here and now, of, of the already. Is that the dead hear? Just as the very words of Christ spoke to the invalid, they speak to our soul. This brings to our remembrance Paul's words in Romans 10:17. So faith comes from from what? From hearing. Only Paul leaves out from the dead hearing that we learn in John 5. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This raises a question that's very important to ask, though. If the voice of Christ is so powerful that the spiritually dead are brought to life just by hearing it, then why aren't there more Christians? Further, why were there not more spiritually dead being brought to life while he was here? Many people heard his voice. Well, that brings us to the second implication of the phrase, the dead will hear. Christ's word is powerful and it is efficacious to bring to life those whom Christ intends to bring to life. I'm drawing this conclusion in part from the dead will hear, but also from what Jesus said in verse 21. Look at it with me. The Son gives life to whom He will. The Son gives life to whom He will. That's... There's no wiggle room there. The Son gives life to whom He will. Why didn't more people pass from death to life while Jesus walked this earth? And and why don't more people today pass from death to life? Because the Son gives life to whom He will. It's plain as day. And isn't it amazing that the backdrop of what Jesus is teaching us here is this scene of the healing at the pool of Bethesda? Think about this. Jesus said the words, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Why didn't every single invalid hear that and get up and take up their bed and walk? Why was it only one? Do you remember John saying that there were many by the pool? There was a lot of people there. But there was only one. Jesus came that day at that time to get that one of many. Why? Because Jesus gives life to whom he will. There's a reason why not everybody got up. And there's a reason why not everyone responds to the gospel. It's because the Son gives life to whom He will. Then to whom does Jesus give life? You know, we don't have to guess at this answer. It's what I love about the Bible. Because Jesus tells us. You can turn there if you'd like. John chapter 17. Oh, by the way, John chapter 17 is only the high priestly prayer. It's only the time that we, we actually get a sneak peek at Jesus talking to God. 
This is a, you want to be a fly on the wall anywhere? It's when you can hear the conversation between the Son and the Father. And look at verse 2. You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus does not say to give eternal life to all, period. There is a specific people. He says to all whom you have given Him. The Father has given the Son a people also known as the Bride of Christ. The Father gave the Son a bride. And when did this happen? Well, Ephesians tells us that we were predestined before the foundations of the world. Sometime in eternity past, before Genesis 1, the Father gave the Son a love gift, a bride. And the Son came to this earth to lay down His life to purify this bride. And then the Son speaks to this bride and gives her life. If you have life within you this morning, it's because you are a part of the bride of Christ. Because you are a part of of the people that the Father has given to the Son. Do you want to ever feel unworthy of the love of God, but also stand amazed at the love of God? Just think about the fact that you are a part of the people that the Father said, Son, I love you so much. Here's a bunch of people that you're going to go save. You're going to purify them, and we're going to spend eternity with them. That's you, right now. If you have been spiritually resurrected, that is a reality about you right now. Boy, I, would, I want somebody to put down their resume, please. What are your qualifications? I'm a part of the bride of Christ. That's all you need to know. Don't do that. That's a mighty voice that speaks to you in your deadness and brings you to life. Many will hear the content of the gospel. They'll hear of the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you've ever wondered why they're totally unmoved, it's because the Son has not granted them life. Isn't this just a different Jesus than the one that's marketed today? Make a t-shirt that says that. The Son gives life to whom He will. You, you want to make some angry people at the grocery store? Wear a t-shirt. Have a coffee mug that says, The Son gives life to whom He will. The Jesus of today would sooner say, Please give me a chance. Than the Son gives life to whom He will. But it's important to say here that in people hiding away the true Jesus, in saying, well, he's not like that. He's, you know, he's, doesn't that remind you of someone who's ashamed of someone? Well, he's, he's not always like that, you know? He's usually, you just got to get to know him. He's actually a pretty great guy. And so what they try to do is this bait and switch 
where they put forward the things that they think will draw people to Jesus. Look over here. He's a great guy. He's compassionate. He's nice. He's going to make you have a better life. He's not going to judge you. And they hope that that's going to be what draws people to Jesus. How? If it's not Jesus. What did Jesus tell us in chapter 3? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That means that you and I don't need to worry about what's going to bring them. We just speak the word of Christ. Why? Because people who are dead need to hear the voice of the Son of God. They don't need to hear clever marketing tricks, clever ad campaigns. We don't need that. What do we need? We need to hear the true gospel. Because that is what brings dead men to life. You and I are all living, literally, proof of that. Let's look at our future hope in verse 27. He's given them authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In the spiritual resurrection, not all who hear the voice of Christ and come to life But the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and they will come out. It's only those to whom Christ chooses to give life who will hear His voice in the spiritual resurrection. But in the physical resurrection, all the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Think about this. Have you ever thought about the reality of the the resurrection? That there is going to be a day, one day, when Christ comes back. This is when human history ends. Christ comes back. All who are in the grave are resurrected. Everyone. He's going to shout with a cry of command. And all who are in the grave are going to come out. It means Abraham. It means Moses. Means King David, Solomon, John the Baptist, Polycarp, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Adolf Hitler. Everyone will come out of the grave, even those who disobeyed the voice of the Son of God so they did not experience the spiritual resurrection. They will have no choice on that last day. They will come forth on that last day. And Jesus tells us they're going one of two places. Either to eternal life or judgment. What? I thought Jesus didn't judge anybody. I thought Jesus took everybody how they were. And he was okay with however you want to live your life. Well, the Bible begs to differ. As a matter of fact, Jesus begs to differ. Jesus tells us clearly in simple to understand terms in verse 27 that he has been given authority to execute judgment. Okay, well he was just given the authority, but he's so loving and kind that he's not going to do it, right? 
Well, then you keep reading and verse 29 says that He's going to call people out of their grave and they're going to go to judgment. So He's been given the authority that He intends to use. He's going to execute judgment one day and it will be perfect and righteous because He's God. Because Jesus is God. But you might have noticed something very interesting about the way that Jesus refers to Himself here. Up to now, He's only said the Son or the Son of God. But now we see Jesus say that He's been given this authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. What is that about? Why does that mean that He's been given the authority to execute judgment? He says because. Because He's the Son of Man, that is why this authority has been given to Him. Why? What does that mean? Well, Daniel chapter 7 would be very helpful for us to know, wouldn't it? Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. This is an incredible vision of the prophet Daniel. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed. Put yourself, imagine this scene. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now here it is. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What a horrifying scene this must be. This is the image of this cosmic courtroom where God, the Ancient of Days, is seated and the books are opened, ready to judge. Then in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why does he call himself the Son of Man? Because he's saying, hey, do you remember that prophecy from Daniel? That's about me. He is the Son of Man who was presented to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days gave the Son of Man dominion. And a part of that dominion is, according to our passage, the authority to execute judgment. Now imagine standing there in this cosmic courtroom. Fire is issuing out from this throne of fire. And you are before a pure and holy God with books opened that say everything that you've ever done. My friend, do you want to stand there that day saying, I was a pretty good guy. You know, I tried my hardest. Hey, I always voted Republican. I tithed. Hey, ancient of days, I tithed a lot. I was always at church. You know? I bought reformed, a Reformed study Bible. 
Is that what you want to stand there with? Because rest assured, the only thing that will stand that trial is faith in Jesus. Only faith in Christ. Everything else you might as well be holding up to him filthy rags. Saying, look at what I did. Pointing to a sandcastle that's crumbling and saying, look at what I spent my life building. Isn't this good enough for you? And that's why we see that there are two destinations after this resurrection. Some will be raised to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of judgment. And the difference maker is whether or not you believed in Christ Jesus and you have experienced the first resurrection. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And listen to this beautiful statement. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You don't come to judgment. You don't come into this judgment where you're going to be condemned for being a sinner. Why? Because you've heard the word of Jesus. And you believed in Him. You said, I believe that. And I put my trust in Him. If you experience the spiritual resurrection to newness of life in the already, then you are guaranteed to experience the resurrection of life in the not yet. Folks, from beginning to end, you are secure. Have you thought about that? That you have eternal life right now, which means it does not ever end, which means that you aren't going to come before the judgment and find out, actually, you failed. Now, of course, unless you live your life in hypocrisy, pretending, saying, Lord, Lord, did I not do many things in your name? But if you have experienced this resurrection of life in the already, you will experience the resurrection of life in the not yet. What's more is that when Christ returns and you are called out of the grave, in some amazing, mysterious way, you will be given a new body. A glorified body that's like His. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Philippians 3.21 tells us that at Christ's appearing, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. What is that going to be like? You're going to be called out of the grave and you're going to be given a body like Christ's? Christ was resurrected on the third day. He came forth with a glorified body. He is in that body right now at the right hand of power. You're going to have a body like His. The Bible tells you. Why would we ever fear? Why would we ever worry and stress ourselves out about what's going on here? I'm going to have a body, a glorified body that's now freed from sin. 
But not just the desire for sin, also the effects of sin. That means your body won't rot or decay or break down. You know, I love how at every stage as you get older, you start to notice different things going on. And people will say, don't ever get old. Things just stop working. Why? Because you live in a fallen body that's affected by sin. But one day, that is going to be removed. You're going to have a glorified body that's never going to break down again. That you won't have to wake up one day and say, oh, my back hurts for some reason. Because I got a plate out of the top cabinet yesterday. You won't have to say that anymore. Because you'll be in a glorified body. And what's amazing about the resurrection is that you're going to get a body that is appropriate for where you are going. What are we told about the afterlife, about being with the Lord, is that at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You will be able to experience that without the tainting of sin. Is that going to be an amazing day? That is our hope that every single Christian has. But Christ says that those who have done good will be raised to the resurrection of life. How can it be said that you have done good? Doesn't the scripture also tell us in Romans that none have done good, that no one does good? No one does good. So what is Jesus saying? Is that this isn't our hope? And that we're all going to go to the resurrection of judgment because none of us do good? This is one of the beautiful things about our faith. Is that Christ is the only one who can be said, that it can be said of that he has done good. He is the good and faithful servant. And he is so much the good and faithful servant that when he calls us in our spiritual deadness, he fills us with spiritual life. We come out of that darkness to now live lives wherein it is said of us that we do good works that were prepared for us before the foundation of the world. We all deserve to be called out of the grave with full expectation that we're going to our sentencing, where we're going to be sentenced to eternal judgment. But if we have believed upon Jesus, we're going to come forth from the grave to the resurrection of life. This is not teaching that we can earn our place in heaven by doing good things, because no one does good things. But if you are in Christ Jesus, God has made it so that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in you. That you can do good things now because you're His and you've been sanctified and purified. So it will be said of you that you have done good. But there's another destination here, isn't there? Those who have done evil, which is everyone, go to the resurrection of judgment. This is eternal condemnation where the unbridled fury of Almighty God will reign upon the unrighteous and unbelieving. I want you to notice something here. Just as the righteous are raised from the graves bodily, so are the unrighteous. They are given a body that is appropriate for their eternity. The kind of body that is suited to suffer for all eternity without ever dying. They say that the body can shut down after too much shock or trauma. Our physical bodies. Imagine how much shock and trauma the body will endure when exposed 
to the holy fury of God. But the unbelieving are going to be resurrected in such a way that they will endure all of that suffering for all of eternity without being utterly consumed. This will be the judgment for those who reject Christ. Eternal, conscious torment. Jesus rules out annihilationism. If you've never heard of that, that means that some people believe that once you die, that's it. It's over. If you go to hell, if you're supposed to go to hell, you just disappear forever. But he rules that out because he's sending people off to judgment. He also rules out universalism, doesn't he? That everybody is going to be saved eventually. Some people believe that in the afterlife, that once you die, you still have another opportunity to come to faith after you die. Well, isn't that convenient? You can reject Christ all of your life, see that hell is actually a pretty bad place, and say, yeah, you know what, never mind, maybe Jesus wasn't that bad. And then you can believe in him. Well, Jesus destroys that, doesn't he? Because you're going one of two places. You are going to judgment or to life. Reincarnation is ruled out. We're not told a word about becoming something different or someone else after this life has ended. We're told that we as individual people will be raised from the grave to go off to life or judgment. Isn't it amazing that all of mankind's attempts to explain what happens after we die, it's all geared towards removing the fear of judgment. That's why people diminish talking about the wrath of God, talking about judgment, and just humanizing Jesus to the point of diminishing His deity. It's because it makes us feel better about our afterlife. It makes me feel better about eternity to know that there's a Jesus out there who takes me just as I am and He doesn't judge me. But Jesus says, there is coming a day where you will be judged. It's going to happen. Just as sure as Jesus' words brought that man up to his feet by the pool, the same words are going to call every single person out of the grave to one of these two destinations. So what do we take away from this? That day is still in the not yet. If you have never believed upon Christ, why would you delay? Why would you wait a second longer? This judgment looms overhead. Why would you wait? The voice of Christ today calls you forth from spiritual deadness into spiritual life so that you can be saved from the judgment that you rightfully deserve. You can be saved from it. Where it won't happen to you. But if you reject His word, you will be made to obey His word at the resurrection on the last day. There will be no more time to turn to Him. His offer of mercy and grace will be done. You will be raised from the grave only to go to judgment. Friend, if you hear the voice of the Son of God today, do not harden your heart, but turn to Him. Run out of the grave to Him. And secondly, if you have experienced spiritual resurrection you have the sure hope of the physical resurrection to life. It's done. It's set. Your destination is secured. Now all that you do for the rest of your days, First John tells us, 
as you purify yourself as He is pure. For the rest of your days, you grow in greater Christ-likeness, hoping and longing for the appearing of our great God and King, Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the clarity with which it speaks. We thank You for the spiritual resurrection to life that secures our physical resurrection to life. I pray that You would help us to live in light of that great hope that we have. That when things are difficult in this life, when we're tempted to, be, to despair, that we would call to mind our unshakable hope. And Lord, that the reality of the, the physical judgment the physical resurrection, the judgment, Lord, that that reality would lead us to plead with people to be reconciled to Christ. Be with us, Lord, and keep us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.